Good day, everybody. Welcome to our weekly installment of the Bible study. Since last we chatted last Wednesday, you've all heard that we've gone into an amended lockdown level four. But um, thankfully, we are still able to meet around God's word in this way via the audio. And on Sunday, we will still be able to connect together with our online sermon that you'll be able to find on our website as well as on YouTube. So for today, I'm going to invite you to get your Bibles out, to turn to Mark's Gospel, to Mark chapter 6. We're going to actually continue uh, from Sunday where we left off at the end of Mark chapter 5 by seeing what Mark has to say in the first 12 verses of um, chapter 6. So let me pray for us and then we will get into today's passage. Lord God, thank you that even though things are changing almost on a daily basis around us and in the world in which we live, thank you that we can read your scriptures and hold on to truths that have remained timeless and we can hold on to you as our rock and our, our firm foundation. So be with us through the power of your spirit today as we listen to this Bible study, as we also engage with it and somehow get a get a glimpse of what it is to be community, although we are separated all over the place, uh, all over the country at this particular moment, but um, we gather together with one purpose, and that is to read your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Mark chapter 6, I read uh, from verse 1, and this is how it goes. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. So when we start off in verse 1 when we say he left there remember that this follows on from what happened in chapter 5 where Jesus had um, been involved with healing Jairus's daughter as well as the woman the unnamed woman who he ended up calling daughter as uh, she was healed by touching his cloak so he comes now in verse 1 to his hometown which is Nazareth and he's got his disciples around him. And verse 2 says, When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Now, um, some commentaries point out that when we think of Nazareth here in the first century, we must maybe just scale down our, our ideas of what the size of the town was. Um, I mean, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about Nazareth, uh, certainly, I was thinking of quite a big town, um, but actually they reckon that probably only around about 500 inhabitants at this particular point in history. Um, still a sizable number in some ways, but not a massive metropolis in any ways. And then having the synagogue in the town would have been an important place for the Jewish men to come for their teaching and their worship. And so that's where Jesus went on that first Sabbath that he was there and he was able to share with them. Now, many people were astonished, the Bible says, and amazed at what he was saying. And they, re they responded by saying, where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles that he is performing? So there were questions that were being asked of Jesus. Um, his reputation had preceded him. I'm sure in a small town like that, 
the disciples would have already begun to tell stories of how Jesus had healed Jairus' daughter, um, as well as the woman in the crowd, and even going back to um, the man who had the uh, demons cast out of him and they went into the herd of pigs. There's all of these stories that would have been following Jesus. And um, the trouble with those people in his hometown was that they couldn't just match up the person they had known Jesus to be, the younger Jesus, if you like, with what they were now hearing. Verse 3 says, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't these his sisters here with us? And so this brings us to an interesting point in this, because sometimes when we um, are ministering to those who are our peers or people that have known us for a long time, they sometimes remember us as we were and not as, as the person we have become. Now, usually that happens if maybe you have moved away from your hometown or um, you've just basically been away for a long time and you've come back a different person. So people look at you and they think, well, we remember what this guy was like many, many years ago, and now we can see he's different, but we still can't marry the two together. But in their um, questioning of Jesus, they say a few things that are, are quite interesting for us. The first is they say, isn't this the, the carpenter? Now, in the original Greek, there are a couple of different words or two different words for, for carpenter. But one of them is the word tekton. So it's T-E-K-T-O-N, tekton, which doesn't... Um, you know, just means somebody who was a joiner, if you like, but it means somebody who was a craftsman. So not just an ordinary carpenter, but a craftsman. Somebody who was able to do amazing things, who could turn his hand to any job. And whereas as we're hearing that whole thing about being a carpenter and a craftsman, we would see that as being a compliment, but there's a strong chance that this comment is actually meant to be a derogatory thing, to say that, oh, this guy, Jesus, was a carpenter. In other words, he was a working class man, working with his hands in the dusty garage or the dusty home, creating all these um, things in his workshop. He's maybe even been in some of their homes doing some work for them. So now, who does he think he is that he's this rabbi, this teacher, able to share these truths about God and all this kind of wisdom? So there is this, uh, yeah, this sense that it is more than likely is being a derogatory comment about Jesus and his work and, and who he is as a person. This also, in a way, answers some of the questions that we have as to what did Jesus do um, from the time that he was growing up in his young days. We always knew that Joseph was the carpenter, but Jesus more than likely looks like he's learned the craft from his, his father, from Joseph. The other thing that is said in verse 3 is also meant to be derogatory, and that is, isn't this Mary's son? Now, one would remember that the scandal that would have been around Mary falling pregnant without being married to Joseph. Jesus would have been called all kinds of things from people that, that didn't believe in him as the promised Messiah, from that really horrible term that crept into our English language from being calling a child a bastard if they weren't, uh, if they weren't born in wedlock. I mean, that is such a harsh term to use 
for a child who's really innocent in, um, in the whole experience. But this comment that they're saying, well, isn't this Mary's son is meant to have the same kind of impact. It's almost like to jar us, to say, well, wow, that's, that's very hectic to, to say that about, about Jesus. But that is the point, that, that Joseph only married Mary to kind of keep the family happy and um, to kind of make things right and everything. But we know, obviously, a different side of the story, but this is the crowd who are now seeing Jesus and commenting about these particular things. Um, one other thing that is possible is that when they refer to him as Mary's son, it's possible that Joseph had passed away at this point. Now, we can't be 100% sure, but you know, if we, if we take it as them being derogatory about Jesus and being the son of Mary, you know, the child born out of wedlock, then that's the one angle. The other angle is if, if Joseph had passed away, um, and he wasn't there anymore, then that's why they're referring to him as Mary's son. Because maybe if Joseph was still alive, they would have said, well, isn't this the son of Joseph? Even if he was the, you know, the adopted son or stepson or whatever term you want to use in today's language. Um, but the, the, the point is, is that they are so prejudiced by the Jesus and the family that, that they know that they can't marry the two together, that this guy has now become this traveling rabbi, this miracle worker. Because at the end of verse 3, you note that they take offense at him. When you take offense at somebody, it's like you, you, you don't want to believe what they're saying. You're offended in a way because you, you just can't picture this person sharing these these things and you just really can't accept it and so you take offense someone has once said that prejudice can blind us to the true value of another person and that is so true isn't it that um, sometimes you you can't see beyond the face value of a person and sadly in our own country in south africa we have many stories of that where you would see a person's color and you think, well, you know, I can't look beyond that person's color. I can't see the good in them. I can't see the value in them. And how over time we have to check our prejudices and then understand that, yeah, the people of different colors um, can love Jesus and can be used by God and, and are so vital in our church and in our communities. So these people, those um, neighbors and community members of Nazareth, they took offense at Jesus. They just could not picture him as being this rabbi. The New Living Translation says they were deeply offended and they refused to believe in him. So very strong words there. Jesus then says to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. And so he's referring to himself here as a worker for God, a prophet is someone who works for God and who ministers for God. Um, and, and he's kind of claiming that this is the role that he has been given by his father. And um, then he says, well, Mark says that he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. So Jesus doesn't stop ministering just because these people don't believe in him and they are offended by him. 
but he realizes that because they think they know him and he's being rejected by his peers, that the success, in inverted commas, of his ministry is going to be limited because the people don't bring that active faith to him. They aren't, they aren't coming with this understanding or this belief that he can actually heal them. Now, I am surmising here that the people that are healed by him in Nazareth, those who the, the few sick people that he's healed, are the ones who managed to look beyond that or, or just are so desperate like the woman who touched his cloak that they are willing to believe and to put their trust in him. And they've heard stories about his miracles. And so they say, well, what have we got to lose? We want to reach out to Jesus and hope that he can help us. Jesus also touches on something here, or when I say Jesus, I mean Mark has put this in, uh, in connection with Jesus, that he is amazed at their lack of faith. Now one, one remembers that in order for healing or miracles to take place, there needs to be two active ingredients, if you like. One is a movement from the person who needs the healing or needs the miracle, and that's what we call faith to believe that something greater can happen or that, that God will intervene. And the second thing that one needs is the power of God, the, the supernatural, the miraculous power of Jesus in this moment. Now, clearly there's plenty of that. You know, Jesus isn't limited with that. We've just seen it in, in Mark chapter 5. In fact, all those miracles and, and healings in Mark chapter 5 show us God's power, his supernatural power and his willingness to heal. And to, and to save people from their sins. But what is lacking in this is the, the belief of these people that God can do it through Jesus. Um, they just, like I've been saying throughout this Bible study, they just couldn't marry the two together. That this guy, the guy they saw growing up as a teenager and maybe playing games out there with the his siblings and the rest of the community, that he is the same one and the one who is the miracle worker. And so that stopped them and prevented them from stepping out and like Jairus and like the woman kneeling before him and saying, please help us. We believe that you are the one who can help us. But like I said, this didn't stop Jesus from ministering. He just realized that it was going to be more and more difficult. And so he spread out then from Nazareth, going to uh, teach from village to village. That's what verse 6 carries on to say. He went teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. So nice, um, quite a lot of meaning in verse 7 here. We see some, some interesting things. One, that Jesus is willing to give away his authority. Because he realizes that the authority that's given to him has been given, uh, um, was given by his father. And so now as he gives the spirit of his father, the spirit of God um, to his disciples when he ascends, so he grants them his authority now over the impure spirits. Interesting, interestingly, in Mark 5, it was only Jesus who had the power over the demons and the impure spirits. But now Jesus, in expanding his ministry and entrusting his disciples, is giving them authority to do these things in his name. It's also a classic um, picture, if you like, of mission. 
that Jesus by himself, remember he was limited to all the same things that we are limited with time and space. He could only be in one place at one particular time. If we think about that mathematically, how long would it have taken Jesus to go from village to village, town to town as one person? Now, in terms of multiplying his ministry, he is able to increase that by sending out his disciples. Now, pure maths would tell us, well, why didn't he send out the 12 to 12 different villages? Because that would have proved much more successful than sending out um, six teams of two people. They're going to reach less people than the 12. Well, I think there's also some great method in this and a lesson for us, possibly, is that in sending them out two by two, Jesus knew that they would need to rely on each other. There's that sense of encouragement and strength by going with a partner in Christ to go to those people that need to be uh, hearing the gospel. It also is as a, as a witness. Um, I think it's also very important that when you go out in ministry that you take somebody with you as a witness. Um, but I think, yeah, just in terms of, of strength and encouragement to be together in the midst of ministry is a, is a very powerful gift. Ministry can be a very lonely place. Um, and sometimes you encounter all kinds of things that are challenging, but to know that there's someone with you is a very powerful gift, like I say. And so Jesus sends them out um, remembering they're still learning, they are still disciples, and so they can lean on each other, teach each other as they take the authority of Christ with them. Jesus then gives them these instructions where he says, take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts, wear sandals but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. Um, and if in any place you will not be welcomed or listened to, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So part of what Jesus is sharing here, we believe, is that compared to the other priests and the other religious people who were wandering around and, and sometimes doing it for their own gain and their own benefit, he wanted his disciples to be seen to be doing it purely uh, to share the good news and the gospel. They weren't out to get things from people, but rather just to give. And, and also the urgency of it, not to think that they were um, you know, going to be taking their whole big backpack full of stuff, but that they were going to travel lightly, if you like. And then they'll be also hosted, and, and hospitality was a big thing in the East, still is a big thing in the Eastern communities that the trust, that the homes that they entered would take care of them with food and shelter and in, um, in exchange that the disciples would be able to give them the gift of grace and the good news. In Jewish custom, whenever Jewish, uh, particularly uh, priests and rabbis would enter, but any, any Jewish person, when you entered into a Gentile territory, um, you, would, you would shake the dust off your feet as, as, uh, as a mark of saying, well, you're kind of leaving those people to their own devices, to the ways of the world, if they didn't want to accept God as, um, as Savior. And, and in this, a little twist or a play on this, because more than likely the disciples themselves were going to be entering homes that were of Jewish people, not just Gentile people. 
And so it would be seen as quite an insult in a way that if a Jewish disciple of Jesus comes to a home and is not welcome, that the Jewish disciples would shake the dust off their feet in the home of a Jewish person. Uh, the Jewish person would know exactly what that meant. Um, and, but Jesus is saying, look, when you come to share the gospel or the good news with anybody, regardless of whether they're Jewish or non-Jewish, you know, share it. But then if they don't want to receive it, shake the dust off and carry on. Um, and it reminds us, I think it reminds me, friends, that sometimes we, we feel anxious. I feel anxious if people don't want to receive Christ. I'm like, come on now, you need... You know, you need to know Jesus and, and uh, time is short. But Jesus in a way here says, look, do what you need to do. Share the gospel, plant the seed. If people don't want to receive it, move on. Um, and it doesn't mean that we have to stop praying for those people and interceding for them and planting the seeds. But that, that act of shaking the dust off is almost a way of releasing ourselves from the burden of having to change souls because that the gift of changing someone's soul and their life and their spirit is the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, I mean, even in your own life and testimony, yes, people spoke words into your life and planted seeds, but it could only our, our conversion could only happen through the gift of God's Spirit reawakening us, giving us that new birth or um, being born again, being born of God. Um, and so... Jesus is saying to his disciples, look, you're going to be rejected. And you just accept that you're going to be rejected, but don't dwell on it. Shake your feet, shake the dust off, and then move on. And then verse 12 and 13 brings us to a close. They went out and preached that people should repent, so turn from their ways. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Which tells us that the success, and again I'm using that inverted commas, of the disciples' ministry um, was there to be seen that what Jesus had done in Mark 5, they were able to do now in Mark 6 as Jesus was handing on the mission and um, yeah, the message of the gospel to them so they could pass it on to others. And so friends, as we come to a close today, thank you so much for listening. Um, I'm also going to ask us just to reflect on what this means for us. Because although that we have now been asked not to meet publicly for worship it doesn't mean that we can stop being the church, stop doing the things that God has asked us to do. And thank, thankfully, we have technology at, at our disposal. We can still encourage people. We can still share the good news with people. We can still pray for them. Um, and although maybe the results aren't evident and we, we can't always see the work um, or the fruit of our labor, we, we mustn't be discouraged. And so I'm going to invite us that in this period of July um, that we're about to enter into tomorrow and uh, a time where, yes, we're not gathering in Bible studies and, and big gatherings anymore, let us use it as a time to, to reflect again on the scriptures, get deeper into the scriptures, um, but also to ask God, you know, God, what are you needing me to do in your community of faith? How can I be a disciple? Um, how can I be a servant uh, for you and for your kingdom's sake. Friends, God bless you. I hope you have a wonderful week and um, hopefully we'll be connected to each other on Sunday as we worship together, even if it is online. So God bless you. Uh, let, us, let us pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that even though you were a carpenter, a simple workman in some people's eyes, that that 
teaches us that you were able to relate to the ordinary people, that you weren't so high and mighty that you could only speak to the educated and those in the synagogue, but that you were able to understand the ordinary person. And Lord, that is such a gift for us because many of us feel that we are, are just ordinary in some ways. But um, that, that gift that you reach out to us um, as we are, wherever we find ourselves, is such a wonderful gift. Thank you, God, that you sent your son Jesus to be incarnate, to be present, the word made flesh in the midst of our lives and our communities. And we hold on to you, Jesus, even in these difficult days. And so we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, friends. God bless you. Chat to you soon. Bye-bye.